Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Margaret O'Gorman is president of the Wildlife Habitat Council and author of the book, Strategic Corporate Conservation Planning, which advocates an action-based approach to help the private sector find value in natural resources conservation. Through the Wildlife Habitat Council, Margaret consults with corporations to develop conservation strategies. She works toward corporate sustainability efforts through WHC's signature conservation certification, which sets the standard for corporate conservation worldwide. Margaret, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you for talking to me today. It's my pleasure to welcome you here. I've been inspired by the work you do, and I'm excited to learn more about it. Um, So I'd like to start by focusing on how you are an NGO professional with more than two decades of experience in environmental issues. So I'd love to know what got you started on this path? Sure. Yes, it's actually quite a funny story in a way. I came to this country in 1999 and I had been working in educational publishing uh, for a physics publisher and my career to date had been in academic publishing and I assumed when I moved here that I would continue in the publishing world, which um, would have led me to go work in New York City. And I'm one of those rare individuals that I don't really like New York City a lot. It's (laughs) so big and scary. So I really didn't want to go there. And um, this was back in the days when classified ads for jobs were found in the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And I came across this tiny ad for a director of development for an environmental NGO called Pinelands Preservation Alliance, which was preserving uh, 1.1 million acres in southern New Jersey, where I was living at the time. Mm -hmm. And it intrigued me. And um, I think it was, you know, a time when... Um, a lot of NGO careers hadn't yet been really professionalized. So I went for an interview and they took a chance on somebody who had very little fundraising experience. But, you know, from from publishing, I knew how to do development, business development. So I think they saw that I could just transfer it over to that job. And from that, I just moved to different uh, conservation NGOs until um, um, to where I am today. And so was this environmental focus something very personal to you or something that maybe had interested you, um, even though you didn't think about building a career in it? Or was it just basically uncharted territory? Yeah, sure. It was something that I had been interested in after my undergraduate degree and through my master's degree, which was in micropaleontology, i.e. Mm. tiny little fossils. Mm. I really wanted to try and take some of my education and work in the environmental field. But at the time um, where I was living in the UK, there were no there were no jobs. The environmental community was not what it is today. So it was very difficult to find something so when I saw that job advertised, I thought, okay, this could be my door in to working in the environmental movement. Beautiful, beautiful. So I know that the Wildlife Habitat Council, where you are now, 
hosted the most uplifting conservation conference in America until this year <laughs> uh, with a very practical focus. And, you know, that was finding solutions and ways to celebrate and protect the environment. So I'd like to know more about the council. Tell me, you know, how did it come to be and what, what drives its work? Mm-hmm. Sure. The council, Wildlife Habitat Council is a, is a unique beast in the way in in the community of practice of environmental organizations because we work with the private sector and we work almost exclusively with the private sector but we work on the ground to get projects done rather than um on esoteric aspects like um measuring or measuring kind of impacts or stopping impacts uh, our policy issues, we really focus on looking at a corporate land and saying, what can be done here to make nature better? And through that, we really um, focus on the act of implementation and recognizing those acts of implementation. And in so doing, growing a core of conservation um, enthusiasts and conservation actors in the private sector, so a place where they don't normally exist. And today we have over 600 corporate conservation programs in 28 countries around the world. So that's what we celebrate at our conference every year. Hmm, Beautiful. Congratulations. That's impressive work. Yes, I really like it because it's, it's, it's really focused on doing. And I think you know, we can talk about the environment, but it's only by doing, by putting the shovel in the ground, by planting the tree, that we're making the world a better place. And it's really unique to focus on the corporate sector because there is a, you know, corporate social responsibility piece that I think, um, you know, many people would like to embrace, but maybe they're not sure how. And so you're basically giving them a pathway to not only succeed in their work, but to make sure that their impact is positive, right? With your certifications? That's absolutely right, Lynn. Um, A lot of corporate social responsibility is not accessible to a normal employee. Uh, um, Things like where their power is purchased or how they're managing their waste. But when you can present conservation action as an option in corporate social responsibility, you're opening it up and making it inclusive and engaging every employee in it. So in some companies, we will have, um, you know, security guard is involved or the um, the people who work in accounting are involved or the people who work in human resources are involved. So it's a really inclusive way to get the corporate sector out and active and contributing to their corporate social responsibility. Yeah, and you make a really good point because any change has to happen at the human level. And so by, you know, bringing this down to individuals within the corporation, you know, it's it's one person at a time, one project at a time, but then you have the emotional connection, you have, um, you know, the practical application so that each of those people within the company can make a difference, but then they can continue that that action wherever they go. And so it really ripples out and has long-term far-reaching impact. Oh, absolutely. We have seen people who basically will cross-pollinate, pun intended, within their company, but then bring it back into their communities. I have had so many conversations with employees, whether it's General Motors or um, Fiat Chrysler or any of the companies that we work with, where they talk about what they then bring home and do in their own communities, even in their own back gardens. And that's such a really great thing to hear because that's how it should work. 
Well, it's interesting because it seems to me as an outsider that your life is full of very meaningful work and also relationships. And I know that in addition to your work with the council, you volunteer with smaller NGOs and teach them how to be better fundraisers, which is interesting because you said you started out with no fundraising experience. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about this work with smaller NGOs and especially about your pro bono work in Ireland. Sure, yes. So many years ago, I, when I, in my previous job, I did a lot of pro bono fundraising training. And I found it very satisfying to do that because mm-hmm. fundraising, even though people think it's difficult, is actually a very simple series of steps. It take, you take a concept that you want to sell and you create a series of steps into identifying who you're going to sell the concept to, i.e. your potential donor, and how you're going to ask them and when you're going to ask them. So it's very simple when you break it down. So it really is like journey starting with a single step. So I've done that with a number of small NGOs in this country over the years. And recently I communicated with a group in Ireland where they were seeking help. And, and what's really interesting is that the U.S. has a very sophisticated profession of fundraisers um, from whether it's Harvard University or the Sierra Club or, you know, health systems that are fundraising. It's a very sophisticated profession that is not as sophisticated in other countries. So I've found when I've engaged with other countries um, that they don't really see it in the same way. They might be more reluctant to ask. It's not part of the culture. So I worked with this little group in Ireland and I helped them develop a virtual um, fundraiser online during COVID Hmm. um, for an American audience, which was a lot of fun. Well, I want you to know that one of my oldest and dearest friends is originally from Dublin. Um, She lives in London now, and we have been writing letters to each other since 1993. So um, that's going to be my next book, just so you know, but sort of processing that that long friendship mostly in the mail. But um, it's really wonderful that you're bringing these insights and these talents to other countries because, you know, this, this is a global effort, not only to protect the environment and to, you know, empower people to do so, but to learn how we can all help one another when the task is in front of us. So um, kudos to you. I don't know where you find the time to do the work that you do as well as this pro bono work. And I know that when you're not working, which it sounds like you might be a lot, um, I know that you like to travel a lot. Um, I think I read that you and your husband have done 15 bike tours in countries around the world. So I, I want to hear about that. And I'd love to hear about uh, some of your most precious experiences in, in your travels. Oh, yes. This year is the first year since, I don't know what year that we did not do a bike tour because we're all grounded. But um, being on a bicycle is, is one of my favorite things in the entire world. I've never, never, I've never not had a bicycle. I only learned to drive when I was 27 or 28 mm-hmm. and I've only owned one car in my life. So um, I, I just love my bike. So my husband and I, we've we take two weeks every year where we put our bikes on a plane and mm-hmm. we fly to a country, usually in Europe, and start in one of the great European cities and cycle to another great European city um, and have just amazing experiences along the way. So we um, we cycled in Portugal, in Spain, in France, a few times in Germany, in the Balkans. And what's been really fascinating is um, how 
just how easy it is in many ways. So we don't speak. We cycled in the Czech Republic. We don't speak Czech. Mm-hmm. And we got lost in the middle of the country. And we knew left and right in Czech. <laughs> and, please, and please and thank you. And that is enough in many ways to help, you know, to, to find your way around and to just being pleasant to people. We, we never got into a situation that we couldn't get out of, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And when we were lost, people always come to our aid. And we've just had such memorable experiences on the trails, whether it's just finding you know, a restaurant just when you're about, to, when you're really, really hungry and you can't go any further and you desperately need to eat and you come across a restaurant in the middle of nowhere and it's like, oh my God, this is such magic. Or <laughs> cycling in fields where you can smell. I remember sometime we were cycling in fields where you could smell them harvesting the celery, mm. which you could never do if you're in a car driving around or just, you know, going to small towns that are not generally on the tourist track, but because it's really the right distance for your cycling that day. So discovering tiny little towns that you would not normally. It's just a really great way to travel and to see the world. It is. And it, it sort of aligns with the work that you do as well, because you're really in, in immersed in the environment and you're experiencing all the elements of it, all the senses um, and taking your time, which I fear most of us don't do. We really rush through things. I mean, except for this year, but um, yeah. you know, we really, we, we go from one thing to the next, to the next, to check things off our list, but um, don't often take the time to just notice, you know, what is that tree like? Or like you said, you could smell them harvesting the celery. When would anybody experience that when they're in their busy lives? So um, yeah. it, it's compatible with your work for sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it so is. And when some people, when cyclists ask, ask us about our trips the first question is how many miles do you do and we're like we don't care mileage is not is not the point here some days we might do 24 miles some days we might do 65 it doesn't matter but that the experience of getting from a to b is what becomes really important and you know you talk about like just noticing things and recently i was looking through some photos of a trip that we did in the balkans um and we were in vukovar in croatia which had been the scene of incredible um, violence and what's called war crimes back in the civil war and there was a tree there and this tree there was a photograph of the city before it had been bombed and the tree was in the photograph Hmm. and the tree was still standing today and it had this massive scar in it which obviously had come from the bombardment of the city and there was this old woman sitting at the base of the tree and she saw my husband and I talking about the tree and I was saying, oh, I bet you this tree, you know, was damaged in the war because look, it's on this photograph over here. And isn't it amazing? And she tried to talk to us, but she couldn't because she didn't have a word of English. And of course, we didn't have a word of her language. But just her, her kind of sense of permanence with that sitting beside that tree and us kind of noticing the tree, but the tree in itself having survived you know, a long period of time, it was probably over 100 years old, but then having survived the bombing of the city, it was just such a beautiful thing to notice. Mm. I can totally feel a poem coming on to write about that experience. It's so, <laughs> so beautiful and, and metaphorical for the human ex- existence experience, whatever, you know, but um, really interesting. So thank you for sharing that. I know that you are based in Washington, D.C., right? In our nation's capital? Yes. And so I know you're dedicated to participating in peaceful citizen gatherings on important issues. So um, in the last few years, I think you've participated in 10 peaceful marches (laughs) in Washington. Um, 
I'm wondering, I'd love to hear what motivates you to take such a hands-on role and what does it feel like when you're marching alongside others dedicated to a meaningful cause and connected by that dedication? Sure, yes. It's 13 now. 13. Um, Wonderful. (laughs) But, um, you know, my husband and I, we, we don't have children, so we don't have all of the commitments that people have at weekends and things like that. And when we moved to Washington, D.C., we were trying to think of, well, how can we connect and how can we make sure that our presence in D.C., um, is not just on the sidelines because it is such an important place when it comes to what's happening in our country and in our world. And one of the things we said we would do is, you know, when we have an opportunity to go and support the causes that we support, that we would attend to that, that we don't have the excuse of soccer games or other things, that we would actually go, we'd represent our community, our friends who maybe live elsewhere and can't come down. So, you know, being at the Women's March in D.C. in January of 2017 was an amazing experience to be among such a big gathering of people all thinking and talking about the same thing. And actually, we didn't even realize how big it had become until we came home and watched it on TV, (laughs) because when you're there, you think, oh, my God, this is crazy. But then when we realized how actually big it was, it was a phenomenal experience. And we went to, we've been to a number of Earth Day marches too, where we're really trying to just be there, be counted, be part of the groups on the streets that are talking about how we should be doing better for our planet. And it's just an amazing experience to to be part of that and to be able to say that you are part of that and to be counted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important, I think, to like my organization is non-advocacy. It's we're not anything to do with policy. Um, but as an individual, having that ability to go out and make my voice heard is very important. It's wonderful to show up for those causes and to to know that, you know, just by gathering together, you make a difference. Um, voices connect and so the voices are louder. And so, you know, just by being there, we really do witness and um, stand as testament to the issues that matter. So um, that's lovely. And my children are on their way out of the house. They're teenagers. So you've inspired me for um, a goal that we can definitely aspire to in a few years. Thank you for that. (laughs) So on this show, um, you know, we focus on how people find meaning in work and purpose in life. And I would love to invite you to um, offer our listeners some wisdom or advice about how they can discover their meaning and then um, let it direct them in their work and in in everything they do. I'm not sure I'm a person to give advice, but um, if I was to to think of advice about meaning, to me, it's really to just try it. I think a lot of us are not nervous, but just not confident enough to try something that may take us out of our comfort zone, like going to a protest or like traveling at 11 miles an hour in a country where you don't speak the language. But I think every time I've tried something and gone out on a limb and maybe done something, what we call in Ireland is a bit daft, (laughs) um, I've never regretted it. I've never regretted taking action. I've always regretted when I've not taken action on something, when I've not taken that opportunity. And I think it's a really great way to kind of find your feet in the world is, is by taking action and doing something that will just push you out of your comfort zone a little bit, a big bit, however much. But I always think that doing something is much better than doing nothing. And I've never regretted doing something. That's very well said. I, I think that, you know, for off the cuff wisdom, 
That hits the nail on the head for sure. <laughs> well, Margaret, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. We will share in the show notes links to the council and to your book and to everything. Um, but you know, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me, Lynn. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.